Good evening. Our reading this evening is from Daniel chapter 8, and it's on page 894 in the Bibles in front of you. So that's Daniel chapter 8, page 894, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the village, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, Suddenly, a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it, the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified 
and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. It's never great to be preaching on a passage where the prophet himself says it's beyond understanding, is it? So... Let's pray before we start. Holy Spirit, we really do need your help understanding these passages and helping them to apply them to our daily lives. So we just pray that you will help me as I speak and you will uh, help us as we listen to your word. Amen. Well, I've just uh, done a, a driving course entirely voluntarily of course uh, and I now know am I looking at what's on the screen I don't know I'm going to, to... Yes. yes so I now know what this is can anybody tell me what this is you will be asked on your driving course anybody doing a driving lessons at the moment this is a repeater sign and repeater signs occur every 200 metres at eye level to remind you of the safe limit to drive at, the safe speed limit. They are there as a reminder to keep us safe. And Daniel 8 is a bit of a repeater sign because we've heard over the last few weeks that that big theme of the book of Daniel is what theologians call the sovereignty of God. What everybody else would say is, is that God's in charge. That's the kind of big message 
of the book of Daniel. And, and last week, uh, Ben explained in chapter 7, with all the lots of weird animals and history going on there, that that was another illustration of God being in charge. And so chapter 8, where we come to now, it's a repeater sign. It's going to tell us the same thing, but in a slightly different way. But God repeats these things because they're important. Just like repeater stuff, so we, repeater signs, we need to know this. God says we need to keep being reminded that he is in charge. We need that for our own sake. So if you've closed your Bibles, uh, or whether you have or not actually, open them, uh, page 894, and we will uh, dip in to what's happening in this chapter. Because it is making the same sort of theme, but it's making it, point, it's making it in a slightly different way. And I'm going to sort of hang our thoughts around two particular themes, if you like, because there's so much going on here, we can't pick out all the detail. Um, so two little hooks, if you like, like desperation and restoration. Those are the two things we're going to focus on. Um, and desperation, because this is pretty clearly a picture of desperate times, isn't it? You look how Daniel reacts when he sees all these rams and goats rushing around all points of the compass and all the rest of it. It says in verses 17, 27, it says he was terrified and he was appalled. So I was trying to find a picture of what being terrified and appalled might look like. And here is a, a particularly famous one painted by Edward Munch. And uh, it's called The Scream. And uh, Edward Munch said he had a sort of moment once uh, when he was out walking somewhere near Oslo and he thought he saw all of nature screaming in distress. Now, I don't think Edward Munch was a particularly cheerful bod, but this isn't a bad image, is it? Or description of how Daniel reacted to what he saw in this dream and in this vision. So why was it so despairing? What was so appalling about it? Well, uh, backtrack a bit into the context. Um, Daniel is, a, is an old man by now. He's a, he's a God-fearing, displaced Jew serving the last king of the Babylonian Empire, Belshazzar. And he's living in, in a hope prophesied by Jeremiah, uh, it, written down in Jeremiah chapter 25, that one day soon, people would be returning from Babylon, the Jewish nation would be returning from Babylon and would go back to their homes and that Babylon would be no more. In fact, it's quite possible Daniel heard that uh, in person from Jeremiah when he, was a, when he was little. So there's Daniel living with this hope and then along comes this vision, sort of like a big bang, that blows all his expectations out of the water. It's a vision that actually spans 400 years of history. There's a huge amount uh, going on. Um, so you'll see verses 1 to 13 set out the vision. And then slightly unusually in Scripture, it's very specifically explained by Gabriel in verses 20 to 25. Um, now, I just love ancient history, so we, we could talk about this all night if you'd like to, but I won't. 
so we get the interpretation from Gabriel there, don't we? The ram uh, is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, what basically we end up calling the Persian Empire. Uh, and the ram is powerful. Whenever you see horns in the Bible, that's always a, a, a symbol of, of power. Nowadays, we'd say, you know, the ram was very muscly or something like that, but uh, horns did the job in those days. So along comes the Persian ram, knocks out Babylon, um, and then there's a big time gap. We don't get there, but 200 years later, along comes Alexander the Great, uh, and he is the shaggy goat, for reasons we don't need to worry about too much, but Alexander the Great rushes around uh, the Middle East, conquering everybody, right, left, and center, and then he dies suddenly and unexpectedly. And his empire gets divided up by the, uh, by the four generals. Uh, and eventually, one of the smaller pieces, another 150 years later, ends up being ruled by a king who became notorious in Jewish history, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which is a wonderful title, isn't it? But we'll stick just with Antiochus. And whereas Alexander was rushing around with his army, fighting and, and winning battles, Antiochus gains power a completely different way. Um, in Blackadder terms, he was cunning as a fox with two tails. So Antiochus gains power uh, by doing deals and manipulating people. And one of the ways he's going to manipulate people is he's going to force everybody to follow the Greek religion. He wants the entire nation to take on Greek customs and culture and religion and worshipping the Greek gods. And so what Daniel is kind of witnessing here is a forced culture change. That people are living in a culture where they are being told how to think and told how to behave and there is no space for the God of Israel within that way of thinking. So how do the people react? Presented with this, this, this new way of thinking that doesn't include God, what do they do? Well, you look at 12, 13, verses 12 and 13, um, and you'll see reference there to the rebellion, the rebellion of God's people. In other words, people went along with it. It was easier to fit in with the culture. It was easier uh, to, to surrender uh, your belief in the Lord. Jerusalem was a, a multicultural society, so let's just blend in. Well, that was one way of dealing with it. The other way of dealing it, well, that's, that we're told what happened really in verse 13, aren't we? These are the folk who stand against this change. Verse 13, the people are described as trampled underfoot. They become uh, nobodies. Standing up for the Lord led to persecution. You had to go with the prevailing culture. Perhaps uh, if Antiochus could have had his way, they'd have been debanked and they'd have been uh, excluded from society. It's a uh, it's a, a picture that we can recognize very easily, I guess. It's difficult to stand up against an antagonistic culture. And it's one where we could just stop right there, I guess, and just say we need to ask, each one of us, don't we? 
for the Holy Spirit's help to be able to stand up for the Lord in cultures like that. It's not easy. And what we see here is the result for folk who do stand up for the Lord. They are trampled underfoot. And we know, though, what that looked like. We know that's historically true, because if we look at the book of Maccabees, and Maccabees is a sort of an appendix to the Old Testament, um, it tells us what happens to these, these believers, how they were treated brutally. But the other outworking of that was the destruction of the temple. Well, perhaps that's not quite the word, not the destruction of the temple, but the deliberate recycling, if you repurposing of the temple to be used for the worship of Zeus, the Greek god. So it's no wonder that Daniel is appalled. He was looking forward to God's kingdom coming, but this is not the hope that he had. Um, I was accused of saying this picture is too depressing, so here's a much more cheerful one. <laughs> he won an award for this, same artist. This is a picture called Melancholy. Um, it's a laugh a minute, isn't it? But, but that is what Daniel felt as he saw this. So our society is not getting on better. Do you see verse 11? Antiochus is described as taking on God himself, the commander of the Lord's army. And then he stopped the sacrifices and destroys the temple sanctuary. He's mocking God and he's getting away with it. Well, of course, you can't really do that. You can't really mock God and get away with it. And I think you get a clue with that in verse 19, where this is described as a time of wrath. This is a time of, of great suffering. And it seems to be a time of suffering uh, as punishment for those who rebel against the Lord and a time of refinement for believers. But whatever is happening... All this is happening within God's control. We have that reference, don't we, to the 2,300 evenings and mornings. And there's various interpretations of exactly what that does mean. But what it certainly means is that God has a plan. God has a timetable. And by the time you get to verse 25, there's that clear promise that the evil will be destroyed not by human hand, but it will be destroyed. And the point of Daniel 8 is that this is not supposed to be just an ancient history lesson. This is what the world is like. That's why we get all these stuff with rams and goats running around. I mean, it would be much easier to say, well, there's going to be Alexander and there's going to be Antiochus and there's going to be Nebuchadnezzar and all these sorts of people. But the idea of the imagery is to say, no, this is, this is what life is like. And right through to the end of time, we see references to the time of the end pop up all through our reading. There is no promise in Scripture that we as Christians are going to be looking forward to an easy life. The world is not getting better, getting better and we will see God mocked. And as one writer put it, we are told these things 
to exhort faithfulness, to encourage us in difficult days, and to comfort us in suffering. These things are set out for Daniel before they all happen to show God is in control and so that we can be faithful, we can be encouraged, and we be, can be comforted. This is a repeater sign that God is in control. Well, where's the hope? It's all a bit desperate, isn't it? Where is the hope? Where's the restoration? This passage, I think, hinges around verse 14. Just look at verse 14. There is the promise that the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. In other words, God's house will be restored, be put back to what it was designed to be. You know, the sanctuary or the, or the temple in Old Testament times is the sort of image of where God lives uh, and where he speaks to us. It's where we can enter into a relationship with him. Uh, it's where we worship. The temple is God with us. And at the start of this chapter, that temple has been destroyed, and by the end of this chapter, that relationship has been restored. And you might think, with all this violence going on, and all this nasty stuff going on, uh, and all this, this very sophisticated Greek culture being laid on people, you know, that the central act of deliverance would be rolling back all that stuff. And the defeat of the enemy, but it's not, is it? The central act of deliverance in Daniel 8 is the restoration of the sanctuary. And that is really the great underlying theme of Scripture, isn't it? All the way through, from the fall to the end of Revelation, we worship a God who restores. And most importantly, he restores our broken relationship with him. So it's time for a more cheerful picture. And um, that's not it, but that is. There we are. Uh, this is an interesting picture. Um, and firstly, we have to say um, thank you to Yon Tom, who actually painted this picture and has given us permission uh, to use it uh, tonight. Uh, he's a Jewish artist working in Jerusalem. Uh, and this is a picture of Jerusalem celebrating as the temple is restored on the return of the Messiah. Um, and uh, Jan Tom, I hope you're watching this because we promised we'd send you the link, so I hope you're enjoying seeing your picture. Um, we're not going to agree on the theology of this at all, but the image is a wonderful picture, isn't it, of capturing that moment of joy, of restoration. God with us. And the main thing Daniel 8 tells us about this is there's nothing that we humans can do about restoring that relationship. Did you see twice we are told that no one, no human could rescue the people from either of these great empires, verse 4 and verse 7. There is no human solution to this problem of a messed up world. No human solution to our, our rebellion and all the pain and grief that follows. Now, in fact, we know from that bit of history, Maccabees, 
that the, the, uh, the in human terms, Israel is re-established, worship does go on uh, at the temple, um, and if you're involved perhaps the celebrations at work or at school or whatever with Hanukkah, that's, that's celebrating uh, that event. But of course, that temple worship didn't last very long. 70 AD, a few years after Jesus uh, left us, the temple was completely demolished again. But this picture in Daniel 8 of the sanctuary being restored actually points us to what the answer to this relationship is. Because remember, the temple always represents God's presence on earth. And Jesus, Jesus Christ, is the fullness of that presence in bodily form. So, John chapter 2, Jesus clears the temple and he's acting out again, symbolically reconsecrating the sanctuary, establishing that right relationship with our Father. And there's layer upon layer because at the same time, he describes himself as the temple. And by whose destruction... He will, be, he will restore us because by his death and then resurrection, he brings us life. And then that idea carries on, doesn't it? As Peter describes us as living stones uh, in that temple, the temple where the Holy Spirit lives. So what's happening here in Daniel 8 as that temple is restored stands for our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And just actually, like Antiochus, each of us has made ourselves bigger than God, and each of us has trampled on the truth. And so we need to hear Gabriel's message. Actually, not Gabriel's message this time, but the next time he returns to planet Earth, uh, when he promises the new king and the new kingdom that will never end with the birth of the Lord Jesus. And that is the hope behind this passage. The temple being restored and our relationships being restored in the Lord Jesus. Well, maybe you're still flummoxed like Daniel was because there's a lot going on and he said it was beyond understanding so I'm sure some of us are still struggling with all this. Well, if so, just have a look at how Daniel deals with it. Verse 5, he says he thinks about it. Verse 15, he says he seeks to understand it. That is a very good place for anybody who's thinking, what on earth is all this about? Think on about it. Seek to understand it. Uh, if nothing else, come to Alpha uh, in September. That's a very good way to carry on thinking about the Lord Jesus. And I wonder what you'd have done if you'd been Daniel faced with all this. I think I'd have got down on my knees and asked God to change his mind, wouldn't you? You'd have said, well, you're in charge. If you're sovereign, you don't, this stuff doesn't need to happen. Can't you spare us? But he doesn't do it. Does he? he doesn't do that, does he? He accepts God's plan, however difficult. He writes it down, seals it out. 
and then he goes about the king's business. He carries on serving his pagan king because that is where God, his real king, has placed him. Trusting that God's perfect plan would end in restoration. So it's a difficult passage to take in, isn't it? But as Christians, we know that in all the chaos and the suffering, heaven is interested in us. I love that little reference in verse 13, that the angels are discussing what's going on. This passage tells us that the devil and the forces of evil are defeated and we are restored. One commentator uh, put it a bit like this. He said, awareness of where history is going puts Christian believers in a complicated position. On the one hand, we can have confidence in our future. Deuteronomy 12 says, we will party in the presence of the Lord. Great little verse, isn't it? But we can have confidence in that future so we can afford to take risks. On the other hand, we know what's coming and we're naturally worried about it. And what are we to do in that situation? Well, simple. We get up and go about our king's business.